0: Trafalgar Squared, Episode 4 Emma and Nelson, A Perfect Storm Part 1, First Encounters The story of the love affair between Lord Nelson and Emma Hamilton is one of raging forbidden passion between a great naval hero who came to be seen as his country's saviour and a famous woman whose name was synonymous with beauty, fashion, scandal and salacious rumour. As true stories go, it is right up there with Eloise and Abelard, Antony and Cleopatra, and even the greatest fictional romances like Romeo and Juliet. Now, people know a bit about Emma and Nelson, but the truth is incredibly fascinating and moving, as well as unique and even bizarre. At the centre of this story lies a ménage à trois that would be extraordinary even today. It is a story that brings the high point of the Georgian era vividly to life, And it is a story that has not been told to a TV or film audience for well over a generation and has never been told to a wide audience in all its glorious, fascinating detail. This is a story of fierce ambition, blind, unfettered passion, dark secrets, scandal and astonishing violence on the oceans in an age when ships were things of breathtaking beauty. It is a story that is being told in a proposed TV series called Trafalgar, which you can find out about at www.trafalgar.tv. But today I'm going to give you my podcast version, starting now with the build-up to Emma and Nelson's fateful meeting at Naples. On the 2nd of August, 1798, Admiral Nelson changed the course of history when he destroyed a large French fleet at the Battle of the Nile in Aboukir Bay in Egypt. It was the first major fleet engagement in all of history to be fought at night, and Nelson was the first person to show the world that the young Napoleon Bonaparte could be thwarted in his ambitions. Nelson was already a hero and a household name in England, for actions which have been completely eclipsed by the series of victories that began with the Battle of the Nile. The fleet Nelson destroyed had transported Napoleon's invasion army that was now wresting control of Egypt from the Ottoman Turks, making it part of the French Empire. With the destruction of his fleet, Napoleon's army was left in an incredibly vulnerable situation, trapped in a hostile country. Following the battle, Nelson took some of his severely damaged ships to Naples, the only friendly port in the Mediterranean, arriving on the 22nd of September 1798 the minister in plenipotentiary to the court of st james at naples was sir william hamilton and his wife was emma hamilton their meeting ignited one of the most colourful bizarre and passionate love affairs in history nelson had joined the navy aged twelve he was an incredibly talented officer but had suffered many setbacks and reverses in his years of service he had come close to death from yellow fever in nicaragua and malaria in the far east at calvi a shell landing beside him fired gravel fragments into his right eye, permanently destroying its sight. In a disastrous raid on Santa Cruz Tenerife, he had been shot and subsequently had his right arm sawn off just below the shoulder. Like many officers, he had spent long periods without a command, on half pay, at one point for five full years, during which he had lived at his father's rectory in Norfolk. At other periods he had spent years at sea, seeing more action than almost any other officer of the time, leaving him with other wounds on his back and stomach. He had a chequered history with women, tending to fall in love easily. In 1781, at Quebec, aged 24, he fell for a 16-year-old called Mary Simpson and resolved to marry her. It is likely that she rejected him. Aged 25, he became besotted with the daughter of a clergyman, Miss Andrews, while on a trip to France to learn French. If she turned him down, he wrote... I may linger out a miserable existence. Again he was rejected, but somehow his spirits recovered. In Antigua he fell chastely in love with Mary Moutray, wife of an elderly commissioner, but she preferred Cuthbert Collingwood, the man who, years later, took over command at Trafalgar at Nelson's death. When Nelson met Francis Nesbit, a widow with a little boy named Josiah, on the island of Nevis, his affection was genuine. But the rich dowry he was promised by her uncle never materialized. Fanny as she was known produced no more children possibly having been infected with syphilis by her husband. Forced to spend years at the Nelson rectory in North Norfolk she often took to her bed unaccustomed to the cold and damp. She was perhaps temperamentally unsuited to the life of a navy wife and did not fully appreciate her husband's unique qualities. She chided him for his acts of daring such as when he personally boarded and took possession of two immense Spanish ships at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, or took part in a raid on Cadiz, during which he engaged in close hand-to-hand combat. But just prior to the Battle of the Nile, he was still genuinely fond of her, describing her in a letter as an angel and beautiful and accomplished. Invited to a dinner by the First Lord of the Admiralty, he begged to depart from protocol and bring his wife. And at the dinner he was observed seated next to fanny giving her all of the attentions of a lover before the battle of the nile the hunt for the french fleet had gone on for many months and nelson was desperately short of frigates to help him scan the wide oceans his appointment to the command of the mediterranean fleet had caused fury amongst more senior admirals one of whom was relieved of his command for his bitter letters of complaint nelson's orders pointed out that the fate of europe may depend on him finding and destroying the French fleet, which was known to have an invading army on board. In the early part of the hunt, Nelson's fleet had been damaged by a violent storm, his own flagship, the 74-gun Vanguard, suffering most of all, being reduced to a floating wreck. Nelson did not blame his flag captain, Captain Berry, but chose instead to see it as God's way of checking his vanity. Without going into Gibraltar for repairs, the ship was made seaworthy in days. As Nelson searched for the French fleet, he fretted and worried himself, to the point of permanently damaging his health. Forever afterwards, any excitement caused his heart to race uncontrollably. During the battle itself, some language shot had smashed into his head, slicing open a great flap of skin on his forehead. He insisted on waiting his turn to be treated, ordering the men not to tell the surgeon who he was. On arrival at Naples, Nelson was greeted as the conquering hero. Bands played, Baskets of doves dyed every colour were released into the air from baskets, and the royal barge rode out to meet him. Naples was the capital of what was sometimes referred to as the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, a place where Napoleon was despised by both the Lazzaroni, the city's peasantry, and the royal household, if not by the intelligentsia who dreamed of a republic. King Ferdinand was something of a congenital idiot, who liked to spend hours and hours shooting thousands of animals as they were driven past him but he was married to maria carolina sister of marie antoinette who had had her, who had been guillotined by the french just 5 years earlier an intelligent strong-willed woman she had a particular friend at court lady emma hamilton emma herself had emerged from the kind of cruel pitiless hand-to-mouth poverty that killed children and particularly girls in huge numbers in the 18th century. Born in the village of Ness on the Wirral Peninsula in Cheshire, and christened Amy Lyon on the 26th of April, 1765, her parents were illiterate. Her father had been a blacksmith and a drunk, who died when she was a newborn baby, possibly from alcohol or suicide. She was taken back to her mother's home village of Harden, where she grew up in the kind of grinding poverty that should have left her with pinched features pock-marked skin and rickety limbs. That she emerged tall, fine-boned, with a perfect complexion and luscious auburn hair remains something of a mystery. Her family were originally from Lancashire and she never lost or attempted to disguise her accent. Her first job, age 12, the same age that Nelson went to see, was as an undermaid of all work. She soon escaped to London, where she again worked as a maid, this time with another young girl, called Jane Powell. They seem to have sparked each other off to dream of fame and fortune. Both would become household names, Jane as an actress. Emma was soon fired, but managed to gain work as a maid, this time in the Drury Lane Theatre, before again being fired in the middle of the winter of 1777 to 1778. Like many thousands of women in a similar desperate position, she had to resort to prostitution a profession which at that time usually proved fatal within five years. But she was spotted by either Joshua Reynolds or George Romney, who both used her as a model. In early 1779, she was again spotted, this time by a quack doctor called James Graham, and recruited to his Temple of Health, where she posed as the Goddess Hygieia, while rich clients marvelled at the mysterious healing powers of a newly discovered force called electricity. Here, impotent aristocrats could hire the celestial bed for £50 a night to impregnate their wives, while goddesses cavorted around them, and electricity fizzed and flashed. From here, Emma worked in a fashionable brothel, run by a penny-pinching tyrant called Mrs Kelly. Emma was taught music, dancing, languages, and how to flatter and fascinate men. And here, she met Sir Harry Featherstone Hoare of the magnificent Up Park, a wealthy young rake who hired her out long-term. She was just 15. At Up Park, she frolicked with Sir Harry and his gang of well-to-do hoorays, who, with an almost unlimited budget, were dedicated to hunting and revelry. There's an old tradition that Emma danced naked on the dining table at one of their wild dinner parties. She learned to ride side-saddle, But her appeal evaporated when she became pregnant, and because the baby turned out to be a girl, there was no hope of any support from Sir Harry. Yet again, she faced utter destitution and death on the streets of London. But at Up Park, she had met Sir Charles Greville, a serious aristocrat and MP without a fortune. Aged 32, he was a collector of rare gems and minerals. He fell in love with Emma, and spotted that he could have her as a mistress entirely under his control at a bargain rate. Ordering her to see none of her former acquaintances or any family other than her mother, he insisted that the baby, named Emma, was sent away to be fostered in Manchester. He even made her change her name. Amy Lyon was now Mrs Emma Hart. Under Greville's control, she was forced to follow a strict regime, dress as a sort of penitent, and tone down her character. Meanwhile, Greville went into business, commissioning George Romney to paint Emma so that he could sell the pictures to rich acquaintances. His plan was a success, but it had an unforeseen side effect. Emma became famous. Prints of Romney's portraits of Emma sold to thousands of households, and other artists were soon painting her. She remains the most painted woman in Europe ever, painted more times even than Queen Victoria. Romney alone would produce more than 60 portraits. But she was becoming an inconvenience, even an embarrassment to Greville. He had absolutely no chance of landing a wealthy heiress as the known keeper of such a notorious mistress. He came up with a scheme to be rid of her. His widowed uncle, Sir William Hamilton, was the envoy plenipotentiary at Naples. Greville had high hopes of inheriting his childless uncle's estate and decided he could kill two birds with one stone by giving Sir William a pretty young mistress who was not marriage material, he could stop him producing a legitimate heir and be rid of Emma at the same time. What he had not reckoned on was that at Naples the atmosphere was different, and Sir William had settled into a somewhat philosophical way of being. An antiquarian, he was an avid collector of Greek and Roman vases, and was one of the first people to seriously study volcanoes. His attitude to life, was that one should pursue one's interests with passion, whatever they may be. And above all, one must not become bored. Less prickly than Greville, he was gregarious, funny, and despite being 55, fit from his treks up Mount Vesuvius. Emma arrived in Naples on her 21st birthday, accompanied by her mother, who, from now on, was to be a sort of housekeeper. Sir William, being wealthy, could afford to take Emma or pay her off. But he saw in her what Charles had missed, that she had character, natural intelligence, real talent, and a sort of classless charm that could win over all but the most extreme snobs. Sir William treated Emma to lavish gifts, a horse, her own carriage with liveried footmen. She had a language master, singing master, music master. She began to develop into a sophisticated woman. She was such a fine singer that she was offered a professional contract the Milan Opera. When the King of Naples set his sights on seducing her, she cleverly feigned innocence and swerved his advances. The Queen of Naples, Maria Carolina, took note that for once a woman had turned down her lecherous husband. William initially attempted to make Emma his mistress, but she resisted, thinking that Greville still intended to come for her. When it became clear that Greville no longer loved her, she was at first enraged and heartbroken. But Sir William was intelligent and kind, still handsome and in robust health. Emma succumbed to his charms and fell in love with him, becoming his mistress. Sir William's home, the Palazzo Cessa, was a stopping-off point for the hordes of English grand tourists making their way around Italy. Emma began developing her own unique art form, known as Attitudes, posing as figures from mythology, creating a parlour game for the educated. It brought together things she had learned posing for artists, posing at the Temple of Health, performing at Mrs Kelly's, combined with new influences around her in Naples, including her study of movement and the figures on classical statuary and vases. This was much more than just a woman voguing in scanty Greek costume. Even Goethe, the great German poet, was impressed and described how, with a few shawls, she gives So much variety to her poses, gestures, expressions, etc. that the spectator can hardly believe his eyes. People flocked to Naples in their thousands to see Emma's attitudes, which she performed for more than 30 years. They featured in books, popular prints, and influenced fashion and dance all across Europe, well into the Victorian era. As well as becoming a genuine superstar, Emma was careful to make herself essential to Sir William's comfort and happiness and she began to make it clear that the slights and humiliations that came with being his mistress were becoming unendurable. Unable to contemplate life without her, Sir William resolved to marry her. On a visit to London, during which Romney painted her 38 times, King George III, who had shared a wet nurse with William as an infant, gave his consent to their marrying. But it was made clear Emma would never be presented at court. She had made the fatal mistake of sharing a room with Sir William at his hotel in London. Despite this, Miss Amy Lyon, or Mrs Emma Hart, became Lady Hamilton at Marylebone Church on the 6th of September 1791. Her husband was 60 and she was just 26, but she had travelled further through barriers of class than any other woman of that era. On their return to Naples, they stopped off in Paris, where Marie Antoinette was imprisoned in the Tuileries. Emma, an ardent royalist, managed to gain an audience with her and carried a letter from her sister Maria Carolina in Naples, the last that she would receive from her. By 1792, Emma had become Maria Carolina's favourite. With a place on the state council and a husband who only wanted to hunt and have affairs, Maria Carolina was a powerful monarch in a Europe that was about to descend into chaos. When the French Republic was declared on the 22nd of September 1792, the Kingdom of Naples refused to recognise it. The only country that could now protect them from the unfolding mayhem was Great Britain. In January 1793, Louis XVI was executed, and by February France had declared war on Britain and Holland. On the 12th of July, an Anglo-Neapolitan treaty was signed requiring England to maintain a fleet in the Mediterranean and Naples to provide ships and troops. A 35-year-old captain, Horatio Nelson, was sent to Naples to secure the promised soldiers. He stayed at the Palazzo Sessa and was lavished with attention by the famous Lady Hamilton. Then, just as he was about to host a party on board his ship for the royals, the Hamiltons and several aristocrats, news came in of a French man of war sighted at Sardinia. Bustling his guests off his ship, Nelson departed smartly. He had spent just three days in Naples and would not see the Hamiltons for five years, but a close friendship with both of them was established and many letters were exchanged. Five years later, when news of the British victory at the Battle of the Nile reached Naples, the effect was to relieve months of unbearable tension. Before Nelson even arrived, he received letters from the Hamiltons. Emma wrote... I fainted when I heard the joyful news, and fell on my side, and am hurt, but well of that I should feel it a glory to die in such a cause. No, I would not like to die until I see and embrace the victor of the Nile. She went on to describe how William is ten years younger since the happy news, and he now only wishes to see his friend to be completely happy. William himself wrote, you have now completely made yourself, my dear Nelson, immortal. You may well conceive, my dear sir, how happy Emma and I are in the reflection that it is you, Nelson, our bosom friend, who has done such wondrous good. When Nelson arrived in the Bay of Naples, the music of competing bands could be heard even before they anchored, and the king was rowed out to greet them, as were the Hamiltons, with Emma festooned in Nelsonia with anchors for earrings and the hero's name embroidered onto every stitch of clothing. On reaching Nelson on his quarterdeck, Emma collapsed, overcome with emotion, falling against his good arm. Now 33, she was at the height of her beauty. Nelson was 40 and was physically very damaged, with a fresh and serious head wound that likely had given him concussion. Worn out with the worry of hunting the enemy and the strains of battle, his old malaria infection had resurfaced. Feverish and with a raking cough, he was not, however, immune to the charms of this famous woman, who now lavished him with admiration and much needed care. Within days, Nelson was writing to his wife that Emma was one of the very best women in the world. How few could have made the turn she has. She is an honour to her sex and a proof that even reputation may be regained. But I own it requires a great soul. In part two, Naples descends into anarchy as the French army approaches. Nelson evacuates the royal family to Sicily, and Nelson and Emma fall in love. Soon, the great scandal of Admiral Nelson's infatuation with Lady Hamilton begins to leak out to the world, turning some of his best friends against him and hobbling his career. And, as the ménage à trois of Sir William, Emma and Nelson approach England, a confrontation with Nelson's wife becomes inevitable. Now, if you think this all sounds like fantastic material for a quality epic period TV drama series, then... I have great news. It's already been written. And please go to www.trafalgar.tv and say yes to this series. We are gathering thousands of emails of people from all over the world who believe in Trafalgar, and I would love you to be one of them. You'll be the first to hear about significant developments, and you'll be able to give us your thoughts, ideas and feedback throughout the process. So that's www.trafalgar.tv. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, please help me keep going by supporting me at patreon.com forward slash Adam Preston. Thank you for listening.